G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to continue to look with you at Luke's Gospel today, chapter 7, verses 1 to 35. Can I encourage you to have your Bible open to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 35. We're going to read through it, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we look at your word and as we see something of the greatness of Jesus, that you would help us to know how best to live in the light of his greatness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading an article the other day from Time magazine. It was asking this question, uh, this question, who are the 100 greatest people in history? The 100 greatest people in history. Who would you have on your list? Who would you put on the list of the greatest people in history and, and why? What, what is it in your mind that, that makes someone great? Well, let me tell you some of the people in the Time article. Uh, Jesus was there at number one. Number one was Jesus, the greatest man in history, apparently. Uh, there were also some other religious figures. Number three was Muhammad. Number 12 was Charles Darwin. I know he's not strictly religious, but evolution has become religion for many, many people. Some other people who, uh, were, who made it to the list were there because they were great uh, conquerors. So there was Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Joan of Arc, Genghis Khan, people like that. Uh, also, there were very influential um, politicians. Ronald Reagan was there, Benjamin Franklin, Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill. Uh, similarly, you had kings and queens, um, Queen Elizabeth and Queen Victoria. Uh, also, there on the list of 100 greatest people in history, you had uh, some very eminent scientists, people like Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, also um, some of the great artists, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, uh, some musicians as well, like Bach, some philosophers like uh, Plato, and there were famous authors, there were explorers, uh, lots of different things that led to Time magazine arguing that they were the 100 greatest people in history. And they did it on the basis of uh, how often you see them mentioned in articles on the internet and that kind of thing. Uh, the, the authors summarise their article in this way. They say this. Uh, we don't expect you will agree with everyone chosen for the top 100 or exactly where they are placed, but we trust you will agree that most selections are reasonable. A quarter of them are philosophers or major religious figures plus eight scientists or inventors, 13 giants in literature and music, and three of the greatest artists of all time. It's a really interesting list to read. And it is an interesting thing to think about, don't you reckon? What makes someone great? Let me put it more personally. What would make you great? What would make you significant as a person? What, what, what would it take for you to, to say that you would be a person who has lived a life of greatness, a, a life worth living, a life significant, a, 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 that has left a, a wonderful legacy or something like that? I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to think about it together. So uh, the leader will put you into some breakout rooms and uh, you have an opportunity to just chat with each other for a couple of minutes and answer this question, what would make you great? What would make you great? Okay, as we come into Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes into the town of Capernaum and some of the elders of the town approach him. 
Now, these guys are Jewish, but they ask Jesus to help a man who is not Jewish. Not the kind of man you'd expect. He is a Gentile man and he's a soldier. He's a centurion. That is an officer in the Roman army. The Romans, of course, have conquered uh, Judah at this time. Uh, But this man, though, has been very supportive of the Jewish people. He's, he's, um, He's helped them to build their local synagogue. Uh, He now has a valued servant who is very sick. And the elders asked Jesus if they would go and uh, heal the servant for the centurion. Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Jesus heads off to help, but on the way, some other people approach him, uh, friends of the centurion, and they say, Look, the centurion, he thinks, Jesus, he, he thinks that you are so great that he's not even worthy to have you come into his house. He says, uh, he says Jesus, you shouldn't have to come all the way to, to his house. You could just speak the word and heal his servant. Verse 6. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion goes on to explain his reasoning. Now, just like he acts with the authority of Rome, the authority of Rome is behind the orders that he gives, so too Jesus acts with the authority of God. The authority of God is behind what Jesus says. Uh, Next verse, verse 8. The centurion says, for I, am a man, I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, under the authority of Rome, with soldiers under him. So I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I, I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus is really impressed by the centurion's faith. Here is a Gentile who gets it, even when, even when many of the Jewish people don't. He realizes the, the greatness of Jesus. He realizes that Jesus has the authority of God. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with the authority of God, just like the centurion gives orders with the authority of Rome. And so Jesus, impressed by this centurion, heals the servant from a distance, without even needing to go and touch him or anything, just with a word, he heals him. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. We move to the next scene. Jesus has gone to another town. He sees a funeral service. A funeral procession is passing by. A widow has lost her only son. She's left with no heir. Her place in the promised land has been lost. Jesus sees her and he's he's filled with compassion. And then with a word, he raises the dead man to life. Verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain. 
and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's an amazing miracle. But it's also an amazing miracle that has precedent in the Old Testament. What Jesus has done, it reminds the people of Elijah and Elisha. They did similar things, two of the greatest prophets from the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, they each raised a boy to life as well. And so the people who see what Jesus did, they say Jesus must be a prophet. He must be a great prophet sent from God to help them. Verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. In the next scene, we head into jail. You may remember from chapter 3 that Herod has put John the Baptist into jail. King Herod has put John the Baptist into jail. John is there, rotting away, and, and he's starting to have his doubts about Jesus. John was expecting Jesus to come in judgment, the, the axe to the root of the tree, fire and brimstone. John hasn't heard Jesus' sermon that we've looked at for these last couple of weeks from chapter 6 about how it's not about earth, it's about heaven, um, about not expecting things to happen here on earth. Now is the mourning and hunger and, and persecution. Heaven is the time of greatness. John hasn't heard this sermon. And so he's writing in prison, wondering what is going on with Jesus. And so what he does, he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus if he really is the one that he's been talking about, that the great one that he has said would follow him, the one who John said before, is so great that he isn't even worthy to tie his shoelaces. Verse 18. Verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to, sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus sends a message back to John. He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah about all the miracles that God said would happen when he came to save his people. Jesus says, John, think about all these miracles that I'm doing. Think about them in the light of the Old Testament. He says, John, I know you're in jail. I know you're doing it tough. But I am the one you're hoping for. I am the great one to come. So don't stumble now. Stick with it. Verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus then turns to the crowds who are with him and he talks to them about John. He says, John is a prophet. He speaks, he's spoken God's word to you. But he says, John is more than a prophet because John is the one who prepares the way for Jesus. 
Verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John is a prophet, more than a prophet though, because he is the one who goes ahead of God to prepare the way for him to save his people. And Jesus says, therefore, that John is the greatest person in history so far. Why? Because he is the one who has most clearly testified about who Jesus is. Now, the Old Testament prophets, they predicted in advance that the Messiah would come. But John has actually pointed people to him in person. John has prepared the way for Jesus. That makes him greater than anyone else in history, according to Jesus. But notice this. Jesus says there are some people who are greater than John. John was the greatest person in history, Jesus said. But now he says there are some people who are even greater than John. Who are they? Jesus says that the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Jesus is about to die and rise again. He's about to establish a New Testament kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom of God. And the point is this, anyone who is in that kingdom, anyone who is in Jesus' kingdom through his life and death and resurrection, anyone in that kingdom will know more about Jesus than even John did. More than the prophets who just pointed to a Messiah, more than John who pointed to Jesus but didn't know about his life, death and resurrection. The, 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 the person, no matter who they are, even the least, if they are in Jesus' kingdom, they will know the Jesus who lived and died and rose again for them. They will know this king of God's eternal kingdom. They'll be able to testify to Jesus even more clearly than John, who was even more clear than the Old Testament prophets. And so as these people in Jesus' kingdom, as they know Jesus and as they show him to the world, they will be even greater than John. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Luke then tells us, about how people are responding to Jesus. Some people were accepting him, not the people you'd expect. It's, it's ordinary people, even sinful people like tax collectors. They, they listened to John's great call to repent, and now they're listening to Jesus. But sadly, the religious leaders aren't convinced. They rejected John the Baptist, and now they're rejecting Jesus. Verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. And then Jesus starts to talk about these Pharisees and experts of the law who, who, who rejected John and also are now rejecting Jesus. He says they're like spoiled brats, like spoiled brats. 
that they refused to dance to God's tune. They didn't like John and his ways, complained about the way he did things. Now they don't like Jesus and, and his ways. It doesn't matter who God sends, that they will not listen. Verse 33. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They complained about John, they complained about Jesus. Even though they do things differently, they still find something to whinge about. They will not listen to God's word. But Jesus finishes by talking about some people. He calls them wisdom's children. Wisdom's children. Who are they? Well, in context, it's the same as the people who are least in the kingdom of God. It's those people who trust in Jesus and who then go on to point other people to Jesus. People like John and people who will be in Jesus' New Testament kingdom. These great people that Jesus has talked about. Jesus says that these children will prove wisdom right. How? Well, I guess by the way that they live, they will show the rightness of who Jesus is and what he's done, but, but more, more especially, it will certainly it will happen on Judgment Day. It'll be perfectly clear on Judgment Day. Those who have trusted Jesus will prove God's wisdom to be wisest of all as they stand right with God through Jesus. Verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Okay. Can you see what's here in this passage? First scene, Jesus healed the centurion's servant from a distance by a mere word. His extraordinary greatness heals with a mere word. Then Jesus raises the dead, the dead son of the widow, raises him to life again. John asks from prison, is Jesus the promised one? And Jesus points to all of the extraordinary miracles that he's doing and the way that they fulfill the Old Testament. And he says to John, yes, yes, it is me. I am the one to come. I am the great one. Jesus then talks about John says that he is the greatest person in history, the prophet who prepared the way for Jesus to come. But Jesus says that those who will be in his New Testament kingdom will be even greater than John. Why? Because they will, they'll be able to know and show Jesus even more clearly than John. And then that last scene, Jesus complains about the religious leaders, that they rejected John, they rejected him, they cannot be pleased, they will not follow God's way, but he says that wisdom will be vindicated. It will be proved right. As people know Jesus and show Jesus, as people put their trust in Jesus, as they come into his kingdom, they will be vindicated. Ultimately on judgment day, it will be seen perfectly clearly the, the true wisdom that Jesus offers to those who trust in him. All right, well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. There's plenty to say here, but the thing that strikes me most about this passage is, is the stuff that it tells us about greatness. The, the things that this passage tells us about greatness. A couple of things to see here. The first thing, the first thing to see here, the first thing this passage is clear about is this. Jesus is the greatest, without competition, without rival, without peer, without 
without any comparison, really, Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the one who can heal with a mere word from a distance. Jesus is the one who can raise the dead to life. Jesus is the one who can give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. He is the one who is to come. He is the one who will save his people. Jesus is the one, we find out as we work to the end of Luke's Gospel, who dies and rises again and pours out God's Spirit so that everyone who trusts him will pass through judgment and into eternal life. Reality is, if Jesus could do any one of those things, or if Jesus could just make one person have eternal life, well, that would make him the greatest person in history. If Jesus could just make one person have eternal life, that would make him the greatest person in history. But Jesus has done it for millions and millions of people throughout the ages. Jesus is the one who was to come. He does bring the eternal salvation of God to both Jew and Gentile. As we get that, the little clue is this Gentile, Gentile centurion has his servant healed. Jesus can bring salvation to both Jew and Gentile. Jesus can bring you into the eternal kingdom of God. Muhammad Ali might have claimed to be the greatest. It's not true. Jesus is the greatest. That's one thing the Time magazine article got right. Jesus is number one, the greatest. Second thing to say, though, from this passage about greatness is this, and this is where I think the Time magazine differs by having a whole heap of different people from Jesus. In God's sight, greatness is measured not by all the things that you do or by conquering or by being a philosopher or a scientist or an artist. No, no, greatness is all measured by your connection to Jesus. That's what this passage says, isn't it? Doesn't it? The, the prophets of the Old Testament were great because they pointed people to the coming Messiah. But then John the Baptist, he did it even more clearly. He was able to point to Jesus in person. And so Jesus says, he's even greater than the prophets. But, but, but then Jesus says, even the least person in his New Testament kingdom, even the least person who knows him as the king who died and rose again from the dead for them, even the least person in his kingdom is greater than John. So what makes someone great? It's all about this. How clearly do they know and show Jesus? That's greatness in God's eyes. How clearly somebody knows and shows Jesus. Friends, let's take a moment to think this through because... I reckon this turns, turns our way of thinking about life upside down. I suspect. I don't suspect. I know. I'm sure of this. I'm sure for many of us, we think that our most important contribution to the world is the stuff we do, our work, what we build or what we make or what we heal or what we add up or what we fix or what we clean or whatever it is that we do. We think... Greatness in parenting is to, to raise successful, well-adjusted children who go on to do important and well-remunerated work. Uh, like, that's all good, but what Jesus is saying here is this. Greater than any of these things is how clearly you know and show him. Do you know what that means? It means the greatest part of your day 
was not when you closed that multi-million dollar deal. The greatest part of your day was that time when you read the Bible with your friend or your family. Or, or that time when you prayed with your friend or family. It means that the, the, the greatest thing that you will do in a week is gather with God's people and encourage them to trust and live for Jesus, whether that's at home, day by day, or at Bible study, or, or, or at church. It means that the greatest thing that you will do at work is not your work itself, as important as that is. The greatest thing that you will do at work is show Jesus, commend him by your clear verbal testimony, backed up by your faithful work and godly character. This means that the greatest thing that you will do as a parent is not force your child to study or get off the telephone or do violin practice, as important as those things are and as difficult as they are. The greatest thing you will do as a parent is to show Jesus to your children by your words, but more than by your words. It's got to be backed up by your example and by your own priorities and your passion because that's what will rub off on them when they understand your passion and your priorities. The greatest thing you'll do as a parent, the greatest thing you'll do as a worker, the greatest thing you'll do as a person is know and show Jesus. A few years ago, I used to meet for Bible study at the home of a member of our church. Um, in his lounge room, he had a whole heap of uh, trophies and awards kind of on, on the mantelpiece. Uh, one time I went to his place for Bible study and I saw this new sparkling award. He just won the prize for the, the, the best international engineering project of the year. It was for a, a, a bridge and kind of highway that went over the water that he designed down uh, near Wollongong. Now that you would think, that's some kind of legacy. That's something that will last well beyond our own lifetimes. To, to have a whole bridge that you've designed, thousands of people driving over it every day, you, you've won an award for the best international engineering project in, in, in the world. I congratulated him on his beautiful prize, but you know what he said to me? He said, you know what? He said, it's just a bridge. A couple of hundred years, it'll be gone. But what we're doing here tonight in Bible study, this is what will last forever. Friends, I think he had it right, don't you? I think he'd understood greatness. Because Jesus challenges our whole conception of greatness, doesn't he? So let me finish by asking you this. Are you living a great life? That is, are you knowing and showing Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the great Lord Jesus, the one who was able to heal and cleanse, the one who was able to give eternal life in your kingdom. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that it is that we know Jesus as our King who lived and died and rose again from the dead for us. Help us by your spirit all the more clearly to know him and to show him that we may live great lives in your sight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.